You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Mitch Album. This program originally aired in 2006. From New Hampshire Public Radio, I'm Laura Canoy, and this is The Exchange. On Friday night at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, the second season of Writers on a New England Stage kicked off with author Mitch Album. Album was a well-known sports columnist for years before he penned a little memoir that had a huge impact. Tuesdays with Maury, an international bestseller with 11 million copies sold worldwide. The book recounted Album's weekly sessions with his former professor Maury, who was dying, and what Maury's dignified, even joyful death taught Album about life. After the success of this first book, Album turned to fiction, but his themes remained the same the lessons we learn from death, and the importance of appreciating the people in our lives and the ordinary pleasures of day to day. Album's latest book is called For One More Day, and it captures a wish many people share to have just one more day with a loved one who's died. On Friday night, Mitch Album came to the Music Hall in Portsmouth, his appearance marking the second season of Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership of New Hampshire Public Radio, the Music Hall, and River Run Bookstore. Today in the Exchange, we play back that event for you. First, author Mitch Album gave a presentation, and then I joined him on stage with a few questions of my own and some from our live audience at the Music Hall. Thank you very much. Uh, I can't see you, but it sounds like you're out there, so thank you for coming. I want to thank the band because the last song that they played just before the introduction was the song that I wrote with Warren Zevon, and they did a great rendition of it, so thank you very much. I've never heard it done by anybody else. And so uh, I should probably uh, tell you how that happened because since you heard that, and I was wondering, well, what should I start off with? Because so start off with a witty story or something, and so I'll tell you how that happened, because Warren Zevon and I became friends uh, through the Rock Bottom Remainders band that you heard about, which is an ever-expanding band of writers with no talent whatsoever. <laughs> and uh, our, our rule is, if you know more than three chords, you can't get in the band. So. And Warren, uh, for some reason, is a very well-read guy, and he just wanted to hang out with the writers, and he became sort of part of the band, an adjunct uh, with us, and he toured around with us, and we became friends. And so. Uh, one day, Warren, in his kind of droll uh, way, said to me, uh, Mitch, write me a sports song. I, I've never recorded a sports song. I said, well, what kind of sports song? Just anything that no one else has ever done. I said, well, okay, I thought about it. I said, I don't think there's ever been a song about hockey, ever. <laughs> so uh, one night, I sat down and I wrote this song. I wrote the music and the words of it and kind of jotted it down about a hockey goon who you know, was famous for beating people up, but it wasn't really in him. He was just big, but he was actually a soft guy, and all he, all he wanted to do was score, but they never told him to score. They just told him to go out and hit people. And the song was called Hit Somebody. And so I wrote it, and I sent it to Warren, and he was really happy. And one time when I was out there in California, we, we sat in a basement, and we just you know, finished it up together and wrote it. And I thought, well, this is a nice little exercise. That's that. And then, oh, about like six months later, uh, I was on a vacation with my wife in like the middle of nowhere. I mean, way down, we went down towards Australia, and we were on some little island there, and the phone rings in our hotel room, and I pick it up, and I hear that <laughs> kind of thing, and I, I said, hello, and I said, Mitch. He said, yeah, it's Warren. Hi, Warren. 
Want to know if I can change an uh to a the? <laughs> on what, Warren? On the song. Well, where are you, Warren? I'm in the studio. Dave's here. Paul's here. We're all here. I can't go forward until I know if I can change this word. I said, Dave who? Letterman. <laughs> Paul who? Schaefer. I said, Warren, I thought we were just like, we're, I didn't know, what, I thought it was just a thing that we did, you know, I didn't know you were going to record it. He said, well, what the hell else was I going to do with a song? <laughs> and so he was actually in the studio and he was recording it and we changed the uh to the the and he, he recorded it. It's on the album of My Rides Here and it actually became a minor hit in Canada, of course, <laughs> not in America, <laughs> but in Canada. So you try, travel around like Saskatchewan, they have the 45 of it, you know. So that's a story of that song. Thank you so much for inviting me here. I never really figured to be in places like this, and I'm always so honored and, and flattered and sort of a little flabbergasted that I, I get invited to these things because unlike a lot of writers I'm sure who have been here before, I, I didn't really see my life taking this path 10 or 12 years ago. And probably a lot of you first know of me through Tuesdays with Maury, and a lot of people somehow thought that that was slated to be some kind of big book and that I would always end up in places like this. But I'd like to share with you a little of how I got to this new book here and the path that I took. Because the truth of the matter is, Tuesdays with Maury was never even supposed to be a book. It was just an experience that I had when I went out and saw an old college professor of mine, Maury Schwartz, just down the road here at Brandeis University, who was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. And I happened to see him on a television program. I hadn't kept in touch with him. I kind of got guilted into uh, going and visiting him once, and then I was so taken with the way that he was dying and the dignity that he had that I kept going back every Tuesday and every Tuesday, and it was mostly just for me. I mean, I, I was kind of in need of that sort of thing at that time, and, and we were recording our conversations, and we were writing down some notes, and Maury told me how in debt he was one time for all the medical expenses that he had, and he couldn't, hadn't been able to pay for them for several years, and he accrued this enormous debt, and he, he would cry about how he was going to leave his family this terrible burden, so it wasn't going to be bad enough that he was going to die, but then after he died, his family would be stuck paying these bills that nobody could pay. So I got the idea that maybe I would be able to raise some money for him. Now, I didn't have that kind of money back then, and so the only thing I thought of was maybe I could do a book. And I didn't tell Maury that because I was afraid I would fail. So I, I just sort of said, well, hey, you know this conversations we have, you know, uh, why don't we put them like in a written form or something? And of course he said, oh yes, a thesis. <laughs> and I thought, oh great, now I'm going to get homework, you know, <laughs> 37, I'm getting homework. But meanwhile, while we were doing that, I began to go down to New York, uh, unbeknownst to him, and try to find a publisher who would publish the book. And I had written a couple of, of pretty successful sports books, and I went to those people first. I said, please, will you just help me do this book? It's just a little book. I just need this much money to pay his bills. No. We don't want it. No, come back when you have another sports book. No, you can't write it. Who wants to read a book about death? I got told no more places that I can count. At one publisher, I won't mention their name. I actually sat in their office and I told them about my dying professor and what I was learning from him and the things like that in my life with him and his life. And the guy said to me, I hope you take this the right way. You have no idea what a memoir is. You're not capable of writing a memoir. And it was basically like come back in 20 years when you grow up. And so I was happy to read in a USA Today article, I just happened to be glancing at last year, that Tuesdays with Maury is now the biggest selling memoir of all time. So. 
But it, it, it was very late in the, in the game when I finally found a publisher who was willing to do it and give us the money. And I went to Maury one Tuesday. It was probably just three weeks before he died. And uh, I said to him, uh, listen, I got some good news. You know all these meetings we've been having and everything. Well, I got a publisher who's going to publish it into a book. And he said, really? Who? And I said, Doubleday. And he said, ooh, I heard of them. Because <laughs> he was a college professor. He was used to, you know, publishers like the Mimeograph Press, you know, like that. And I said, well, not only that, but they're going to give us money to do it, and I want you to have all the money, and I want you to just pay off your medical bills so you don't have to worry anymore about the debt you're going to leave your family. And, of course, Maury cried, you know, which was no big deal. He did that pretty much every 10 minutes or so. And that, for me, was really everything I ever intended to do with Tuesdays with Maury. The fact was, writing the book was the obligation, you know, because we took the money. But it wasn't the act. I mean, the act was everything that had happened up till that point and, and being able to help him one time for all the help that he had given me. And so when I wrote the book, I mean, it was, you know, I had a contract for, you know, your standard book contract's about 300-page book or something. And I remember writing, and I just wrote it very matter-of-factly. Just I wanted to say what happened. I didn't want to get all flowery or whatever. Just here's what happened. Here's what we talked about. And all of a sudden, I was pretty close to the end. And I was like about 150 pages. So I had to call the publisher. I said, listen, I don't know if this is a violation of the contract, but I'm not going to make 300. I don't know if I'll make 200. So they said, well, we'll just shrink the book down. Don't worry. No, they didn't. Uh, but um, they said, fine, it's OK. And so I turned it in. And nobody expected anything to happen with that book, including myself. In fact, my literary agent, I remember I, I asked him a few weeks before the book was going to come out. I said, hey, do you think that this is going to hurt my sports writing career? You know, do you think I'm going to walk into locker rooms now and, and guys are going to point at me and say, hey, you cried, I read it in a book, you're a sap, huh? you know, that kind of thing. You're a softie. And I remember he looked at me and he said, I wouldn't worry about it, nobody's going to read it. But he was actually more right than wrong early on, because when the book came out, it's not like it came out to any big fanfare or anything. I mean, they printed 25,000 copies. I thought I'd be selling them out of the trunk of my car for the rest of my life. You know, just pull up to a house and say, I got a book in the back if you, you know, got five bucks, I can get. In fact, early on, like I'm on a book tour now, but believe me, I was on a book tour then, and I didn't get invited to places like this. In fact, I didn't really get invited anywhere. We had to kind of push our way into places. To give you an example, I remember in Indianapolis, the only interview I could get in the whole city of Indianapolis was on a morning zoo rock and roll station. <laughs> and I went in there, and the, it was, the lights were all out. There was like a black light on. The music was blasting, and the disc jockey's hair was all over the place. And we opened the door. I see my book kind of on the counter there, and he kind of motions us to come in, you know. You can't hear with all the music. And pulls down the little dial that they had, a fader that he has there, and he does in one of those disc jockey voices. He says, yeah, that was some Van Halen for you folks. And uh, now we have uh, an author, Mitch Ablom, and, uh, and he's got this book, uh, Tuesdays with Maurice. Uh, so I guess, Mitch, the obvious first question would be, why Tuesdays? I just still don't have the answer to that question. <laughs> but that's kind of how it went. And then a funny thing began to happen. Uh, people began to read the book. That's all it was. People just began to read the book and hand it out to other people and hand it out to other people. And it started to get this like, little buzz going. You know, people like yourselves, things like this that celebrate reading. And it's funny, when a publisher publishes a small book, they don't really know what to do if 
it starts looking like it'll be a big book because they don't want to admit that they could be wrong, you know? So it's just a small book behaving oddly, you know? And, <laughs> and that's what we were. We were a small book behaving oddly. And so when it came time to maybe print some more copies, they were very cautious. They went in like multiples of eight. <laughs> okay, we'll go to 25,008, you know? 25,016, you know? How about nine? No, no, we don't want to get them back. No, no, not nine. And then a funny thing happened. I got a call from Oprah Winfrey. Yes, hello, Oprah. And it wasn't the call from Oprah Winfrey. It wasn't, you know, we're going to pick you as a book club or anything like that. Some people think it is, but it, it wasn't. That call, you know, you hang up and then you call Jamaica to see if there's any condos for sale or something. But it wasn't that. She, it was, uh, she was doing a show on death and dying, and she had Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on for almost all the show, and they had this little five-minute slot at the end of the show where they had like a little tag thing and they, they wanted me to come and just talk about my book there. So, of course, you say, yeah, so happy to. Now, those men in the audience here will know what I'm about to say is true. If uh, you're married or you have a girlfriend, you're the male in the relationship, and you get invited to be on Oprah, <laughs> your wife is coming with you. <laughs> and so is every female she knows. And we live in Detroit, and so Chicago, where she films, isn't so far. We took a school bus out to Chicago. Just take every woman that my wife knows, we're all going to Oprah, me and all the women. So we went to Oprah, and they put everybody up in the back. And I don't know how many of you have done the Oprah program, probably all of you, but uh, you don't get to meet Oprah, you know, backstage or anything like that. It's not like that. I mean, you, you meet her when you walk out and actually start filming, and they film in real time, you know, so everything's very tight. And when a commercial break comes, they say, are you ready, ready? They're going to walk you out. And so I'm standing backstage, and you're ready, ready. Here we go. And they walk you out. And next time you watch the Oprah program, see if what I'm saying isn't true. She doesn't have regular-sized furniture. She has like Gulliver-sized furniture. Like the tables are up here and everything. And as you can see by looking at me, I'm the world's tallest human being. And so he leads me out, he puts me in this giant chair, and my feet do not touch the ground. And so now any thought of anything intelligent I'm gonna say is out the window. And I am just stretching my body everywhere I can, get my toes to touch the floor. I just don't want to look like Edith Ann from Laughing, you know. <laughs> and honestly, I cannot remember a single thing we talked about in those five minutes. I was so stretched out like this, and I sweated through my entire suit. And you know how hard that is to do? Not my shirt, the whole suit. I was only there for five minutes. You know, these patches under my arm. And the interview ended, and I jumped out of the chair, and I parachuted to the ground, you know. And, and I was feeling like a complete failure, and I walked off, and, and as I was walking off, Oprah said to me, oh, by the way, I'd like to make a movie out of this book. Would that be okay? So I said, sure. And uh, that began a lot of other things happening that have led to not only what happened with Tuesdays with Maury, which is, still remains remarkable to me, and... I still feel like it happened to somebody else. I mean, and sometimes people come up to me and they say, Maury, can I ask you a question? I say, I'm not Maury. I was the stupid one, remember? But it led to so many things. It really changed my life in every way imaginable, from how I spent my time to what my conversations were like to what my priorities were like, I mean, all the way around. And then came uh, six, only a mere six years later, nothing like speed writing, my first novel, which was called The Five People You Meet in Heaven. And, oh, thank you. Thank you.
And uh, from that book, and I, I enjoy going out and, and meeting people. I, I like going on book tour. I know a lot of authors complain about it. I don't know why. I think they're being very disingenuous. I think that they would be more insulted if you didn't ask them. But it's kind of a thing with writers, you know, complain about, oh, another plane, another bookstore, you know. <laughs> but if they didn't have it, they'd be calling their, you know, literary agents or publishers, why not another plane? Why not another bookstore? You know? Uh, I like meeting uh, my readers because not only do I get to hear their reactions to the books, but I also uh, often get story ideas from them, or beginnings of things. And that's what happened with this new book for One More Day. After uh, The Five People You Meet in Heaven came out, I heard a lot of people react to that, and they would say, boy, you know, I love that Eddie got to, you know, meet all these people in heaven, and boy, what I wouldn't give for one more day with such and such. And I began to notice that most of the people who said that were talking about parents, for whatever reason, that they wanted to see their mother or their father again. I think we leave baggage untended to with our parents more than anything else, maybe because our parents are often the first people that we know to die, and so we don't really have that whole idea of time running out until we see all of a sudden a parent dies. And so a lot of questions, a lot of apologies, a lot of things that should have been said don't get said, and then you don't have the opportunity to do it anymore. And so I began to think about a story about, well, what if, instead of heaven or anything like that, what if on earth somebody had one of those experiences where they got, actually got to spend one more day with somebody who they had lost, and how would that day go, and would it really be unique, or would it be very plain, would, would they get into arguments like they used to, you know, how, how would the dynamic all work? And I constructed the story, which is the basis of this book for one more day. And it focuses on uh, the protagonist of the story is a guy named Charlie Bonetto. He grew up in the 50s and 60s, pretty typical, very small town childhood, and his father was a World War II vet, a pretty tough guy. And at one point, when he was a very little boy, his father says to him, you can be a mama's boy or you can be a daddy's boy, but you can't be both, so pick. And of course, that's a pretty cruel thing to say to a child. But when a father says it to a boy, you know who he's going to pick. And so he became a daddy's boy, and he stayed a daddy's boy uh, all of his youth, and he played baseball because his father wanted him to be a baseball player, and he just tramps around behind him and mimicked him and everything. And then one day, when he's 11 years old, he comes downstairs, for breakfast and his father's gone. He's just gone and he never comes back. And his mother is left to take care of him and do all the hard work and all the sacrificing and all the uh, dealing with the issues. And of course, like many children of divorce, Charlie only pines for the love that eludes him and he wants his father back all through the time and he never really appreciates what his mother does for him. And he grows up and he becomes a baseball player for a short period of time, trying to win his father's affection, but that kind of goes south. And he gets older and he finally gets married and starts a family on his own. And he misses, his mother dies and he's not there. And I, I don't want to tell you why, because I don't want to ruin the book, but he should have been there and he wasn't. And after that, his life seems to spiral downward. He loses a job and another job. He becomes, drinks, he becomes an alcoholic, he loses his family. And the book begins sort of when his life has hit the roughest of skids. He's received a letter from his only daughter with two photos from her wedding. And he realizes that she's gotten married without even inviting him because he's too much of an embarrassment to risk it, a family function. And so he decides there's nothing more to live for, really. And he gets drunk one rainy night, and he drives back to his small hometown to take his own life. And he kind of botches this attempt at it, and he staggers to his old house, which has been abandoned for years, and he opens the door and he goes inside and he hears his mother's voice calling him from upstairs, even though she's been dead for 10 years. And this begins this one last day that he gets with his mother where 
he's not really sure where he is or what's going on, but she's just going through life as if nothing ever happened. And I want to read for you one section here in the morning of this day when she's cooking him breakfast and she's tending to his wounds and he's still completely flummoxed by the idea that she can be in front of him and he's watching her as she does this in his old kitchen. Now I sat at our old kitchen table and then my mother or her ghost or whatever she was came in from the other room with an antiseptic bottle and a washcloth. I watched her pour the antiseptic into the fabric then reach for my arm and push up the shirt sleeve as if I were a little boy who had fallen off a swing set. Perhaps you're thinking, why not scream out the absurdity of the situation, the obvious facts that made this all impossible, the first of which is, mother, you died. I can only answer by saying it makes sense to me now as it makes sense to you now in the retelling, but not in that moment. In that moment, I was so stunned by seeing my mother again that correcting it seemed impossible. It was dreamlike, and maybe part of me felt I was dreaming, I don't know. If you've lost your mother, can you imagine seeing her right in front of you again? Close enough to touch, to smell? I knew we had buried her. I remembered the funeral. I remembered shoveling a symbolic pile of dirt on her coffin. But when she sat down across from me and dabbed the washcloth on my face and arms, and she grimaced at the cuts and mumbled, look at you. I don't know how to say it. It burst through my defenses. It had been a long time since anyone wanted to be that close to me, to show the tenderness it took to roll up a shirt sleeve. She cared. She gave a crap. When I lacked even the self-respect to keep myself alive, she dabbed my cuts, and I fell back into being a son. I fell as easily as you fall into your pillow at night. And I didn't want it to end. That's the best way I can explain it. I knew it was impossible but I didn't want it to end. Mom, I whispered. I hadn't said it in so long. When death takes your mother, it steals that word forever. Mom, it's just a sound really, a hum interrupted by open lips. But there are a zillion words on this planet and not one of them comes out of your mouth the way that one does. Mom, she wiped my arm gently with the washcloth. Charlie, she sighed, the trouble you get into. Anyhow, that's that section. Thank you. And a lot of people who have read this have asked me, you know, is there any of it true? And a lot of it is actually lifted from my own childhood, including um, two incidents which I'll, I'll end with here one of which has to do with reading, and so I want to share that with you. And it's in the book, and a lot of people thought, oh, that's a great scene. And then when I said, well, that's absolutely true. When I was eight years old, uh, my mother used to take me to the library every Saturday morning. And she would drop me off, and she would come back and pick me up a couple hours later, and I was expected to take out a book. And uh, I was about eight, and I was getting ambitious, and I wandered through and in my little town. I mean, I, I knew all the books. I, didn't, I hadn't read them, but I, I knew their covers and all the things like that. And I came upon... 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. And I, I pulled it off the shelf, and I really liked the picture on the cover, you know, submarine or whatever. And so I took it to the counter, and I, I kind of put it down on the counter. And the librarian, kind of a standard issue librarian, she took a, a look at me, and I had my shoes untied, my shirt out, you know, my hair all over the place. And she said, this is too hard for you, you know. Go pick something out from over there. And she pointed me to the kitty section, you know. 
So I was eight, so I did what I was told. And I went over and I got a Curious George book out, you know. And so uh, she let me check that out. And, and then, I, you know, when the time was right, I looked at the clock and I ran down. In those days, you were actually allowed to leave a building on your own without your, your parents with you, you know. And I ran down the steps and my mother just pulled up in the car, as she always did, in a little blue station wagon. And I got in the front seat and she starts to drive away. And she looks over at me and she says, haven't you read that book like five times? And I said, yeah, but the librarian wouldn't let me take out the book that I wanted to take out. And she said, well, why not? And I said, well, she said it was too hard. <laughs> I mean, I think my mother left the car in the middle of the street. And she just grabbed me by the arm and she marched into the library. My mother wasn't like this with old people in this old library. And she said, did you tell him that he can't read a book? And the library got very defensive. And she said, well, it's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. It's too hard for me. She said, where's the book? Well, it's a very difficult, where's the book? And so she takes it from behind and she kind of plops it down to show how heavy it is. And my mother just takes it and shoves it into my arm. And she says, don't you ever tell a child that something's too hard for him to do. And never this child. And then she just grabbed me. I think we stole the book, basically. <laughs> you know. But because of that, you know, not only did I look at my mom and say, wow, you know. Uh, but I knew subliminally that reading must be really important. And I remember when I was reading that book, there were times when I was going through it and I said, this is really hard. <laughs> But I had to finish it because, you know, my mother had emphasized how important it was. And that's a tremendously valuable thing that you can give your children, that love of reading. You know, you can demonstrate it by beating up a librarian every now and then. <laughs> the other story, which demonstrates uh, kind of the things that go on in people's lives with their mothers, is best illustrated at the end of the book, if you, if you get a hold of the book, um, there's a picture, there's th three pictures. There's a picture of my mom when she was a younger woman, a picture of her when she looks like now. This is her favorite page, by the way. And then there's a picture of me in this mummy costume when I was six years old. And this is also a true story that's in the book. When I was six, my mother decided, like mothers sometimes do, that she wasn't going to spend the one dollar at EJ Corvette's for a Halloween costume. She was going to make one. It was going to be special and she was going to make it. And I wanted to be the mummy. So she decided she was going to create a mummy costume out of cut up white rags that she would wrap around me with safety pins and then toilet paper that would hold that in place wrapped around with scotch tape. And it must have taken an hour to go from head to toe, but as you'll see in the picture, it actually was a pretty effective costume. If you stand perfectly still. <laughs> However, in my little town, maybe yours too, we always had a Halloween parade at school. And that was the first thing we did in the morning. You came in your costume and they marched like three blocks out and all the people on their porches would wave at you and then you'd come back and go back into the schoolyard. Well, so we get our little parade going. I'm walking as stiffly as I can. And we go about one block out and the clouds open and it starts pouring rain. And I don't know how many of you have ever tried the great social experiment of taking toilet paper out in the rain, but it doesn't hold up very well. And for some reason, my mother had made me wear my pajamas underneath this thing. So by the time we get back the two, three blocks, I am a wet glob of, of wet soaking toilet paper. All the rags are at my wrists or at my ankles or at my neck. I'm in my pajamas. All the kids are pointing at me and laughing at me. I am crying hysterically. And we walk back into the schoolyard where all the mothers are waiting under umbrellas with their little cameras to take pictures. And I see my mother and she puts her hand over her mouth like this. <laughs> 
and I point at her and I say, you ruined my life. <laughs> and I look back on that now and I think, you know, no good deed goes unpunished, right? There are so many incidents in your life, I'm sure you can think of with your, with your mother or your father, where you behave that way too, and you don't always get a chance to apologize for that stuff, you know, or, or address it, or even talk about it. And if I want one thing to come out of this book, it would be that if you still have your folks alive, go deal with whatever it is that you have to deal with. It's just finding out your family tree. Because, you know, when you lose your, there's a moment in here where he asks his mother to explain the relatives again because he forgot and there was nobody to check with after she's been gone. Or the coleslaw recipe that she, you never gave anybody, you know, or, or more important things like uh, the apologies that you need to, to say or the forgiveness that you need to seek. We should really do it now. Wrapping up to where I began, I had this remarkable experience with Maury that opened my eyes while I watched him die in front of me to the fact that we're not gonna live forever. We all think we are, especially my generation. You know, we just think they're gonna invent the pill before we die, we're gonna take it and we're gonna be the first generation that's gonna live forever. But we're not. And you don't have endless days. And if you keep putting it off and keep saying, well, work, I gotta work, I gotta work, but I'll get to my parents, and I'll see them next Christmas and then we'll have that big talk. Well, sometimes that big talk doesn't come. And unlike what happens in this book, we usually don't get to have that one more day. And at the very end of the book, I write a paragraph which I think is very true for all the mothers who are here in this room, and it's just one paragraph. It says, there's a story behind everything, how a picture got on a wall, how a scar got on your face. Sometimes the stories are simple and sometimes they are hard and heartbreaking, but behind all your stories is always your mother's story because hers is where yours begins. So this was my mother's story and mine. And this was my mother's story in this book. So thank you for listening to me tonight. Mitch Album speaking on Friday at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, kicking off our second season of Writers on a New England Stage. His new book is called For One More Day. Coming up after the break, I join Mitch Album on stage with a few of my own questions and some insight from our live audience. I'm Laura Canoy. You're listening to a special presentation of Writers on a New England Stage here on The Exchange from NHPR. I'm Laura Canoy. This is The Exchange. Today, we're playing back for you part of Friday night's Writers on a New England Stage event with sports writer and author Mitch Album. Album's appearance kicked off our second season of Writers on a New England Stage, a collaboration between New Hampshire Public Radio, the Music Hall in Portsmouth, and River Run Bookstore. Although already a highly regarded sports columnist, it was his memoir, Tuesdays with Maury, that put Mitch Album on the literary map. The book went on to become the best-selling memoir of all time, selling 11 million copies worldwide. Album's new work, released last week, is called For One More Day, a story that centers around this question, what would you do if you could spend one more day with a lost loved one? In the first half of our program, we heard from Album as he recalled the sudden surprise success of Tuesdays with Maury and discussed his new book, For One More Day. Now I join him on stage with some of my own questions and a few from the audience as well.
Well, thank you for that, Dreadnought. And good evening, everybody. It's great to be back here on Writers on a New England stage. Mitch, how are the chairs? Oh, <laughs> they're fine. <laughs> Four legs and everything. <laughs> and your feet reach. My feet reach, yeah. Very Thank God. <laughs> well, I want to ask you, uh, got a lot of questions, some about the new book, some about what I'll call the middle book, Five People You Meet in Heaven, and then, of course, Tuesdays with Maury. But let's just start, you know, right at the top. What is it? Mitch, about this idea that, you know, one more day is so appealing. You said in your remarks that you talked to people about this and everybody kind of just latched on to this. Sadly, I think it's appealing because everybody longs for it. You know, I imagine if everybody were spending their days richly with their parents or their loved ones or their husbands or wives or children and they got everything out of every day, a book like this would sink like a stone because they say, well, what do I need another day for? I mean, I'm getting, you know, I, I got all that stuff every day. But the fact is, you know, we're a country of people and, you know, I've spent an awful lot of my days doing this, so I don't absolve myself from this at all. We throw ourselves into almost anything except what we, in the back of our mind, know is really important. You know, taking care of our family, spending time, quieting down or something. We just get this project done. Just get this promotion. You know, just get this house finished. Just get whatever it is. And that's how you give away your days. And when you give away too many of your days, you find yourself pining for the ones that you didn't have. And I think that's probably why people have responded to this. You know, I found myself thinking about, okay, what, what would I do if I had one more day? Mm. Um, you know, I have a favorite uncle, for example, who passed away five or six years ago. And a little bit of it was very tempting, you know, what I would say to him and so forth. But a uh, part of it, Mitch, seemed sort of fraught with pitfalls, you know, like I'd want it to be perfect. And what if I burnt the toast, you know, <laughs> it's our last day. <laughs> well, I mean, the fact that you're making toast says something about it because... I sort of postulated that when I was writing the book, like, well, so if you had this one day, how would you spend it? You, you know, obviously it's a magical deal, so maybe you get magic all the way around. Could you go to the French Riviera? Could you ski down the Alps? Would you, you have all these adventures that you never did? And I don't think that that's what most people would do. Uh, and the ones that I've talked to, it certainly, they just want the regular routine back. It's amazing that the same things you find boring and, and repetitive, when it's gone, you just want those bad eggs that your mom used to make, you know, or you just want to play pinochle again, or you just want to walk around your neighborhood. You just want to feel that familiarity. So if you were normally burning the toast, then burning the toast would be perfectly normal. Uh, but it's the fact that you just want a normal day again with maybe some abnormal discussions or things like that that I think speaks to the, of what we really miss. We don't all want adventure. We want closeness. We want, we want to feel the presence of the people that we love. What was the most fun book to write of these three that are so well known? Oh, well, it wasn't Tuesdays with Maury. Uh, that was difficult because that was personal. And uh, I wrote it right after Maury died. And there were times that I left things out because I felt they were too personal even to put in. And in fact, when Oprah Winfrey made the movie of that uh, book, they asked me if I wanted to write the uh, screenplay of it. And I said, no, because I knew I couldn't go through that again. You know, it was hard to write the first time, and I didn't want to write any more versions of it. I guess The Five People You Meet in Heaven probably was the most fun, if fun is the right word, simply because up till that point in my life, I had only written nonfiction. And I'm one of those people that marvels at 21-year-old novelists. I don't know how they do it. 
because I don't know, you haven't lived long enough to imagine things. So how are they making up these worlds? And I've read these great 21-year-old novelists who write about old men and women and the 14th century and things like that. How has your imagination become that fertile? I always knew that I wanted to write fiction eventually, but I kind of felt that I was going to have to spend half my life getting input. And then the other half, I could say, okay, now I've got all this input. Now I can create from the input I have. And when Five People You Meet in Heaven came along, and I kind of chose to make that the turning point to start writing fiction because, to be honest, after Tuesdays with Maury, I was was a little paralyzed. I mean, I had expected to just kind of resume a whole different life. And instead, people were, instead of stopping me in airports and saying, who's going to win the Super Bowl? They were stopping me in airports and saying, my mother just died of cancer, and the last thing we did together was read your book, and can I talk to you about it? And there's this whole different world of hearing these sad stories and and realizing that there's this whole world of people who are missing people and everything, it kind of turned me upside down. And when I thought about writing another nonfiction book, I realized that no matter what I chose, people would hold it up to me, oh, well, he's no Maury, that's no Maury, that's not a, and I didn't think that was fair to whatever I wrote about or Maury. So I said, well, maybe this is a good time to just see if you've got enough input to start making it up. And so there was this moment where you're sitting down in the basement and you're starting to, you know, write and you're creating a story about this guy who dies. And he worked in an amusement park, which was kind of fun to write about because I did all this research about amusement parks in the 1900s and 1920s and 30s and how they changed over time. And you, you get to this point where you say, boy, it would be great if he had a brother. Oh, I can give him a brother. <laughs> you know, you're so wed to what really happened, and then all of a sudden you realize you can make it up. And the discovery of uh, this is what fiction is, you can invent characters, really happened for me on The Five People You Meet in Heaven. And I created one character, which has sort of become my scarecrow. You know how uh, in The Wizard of Oz, everybody kind of likes the scarecrow for whatever reason? You know, like if he took a popularity vote, he probably would win because I guess he was, seemed like the closest to Dorothy or whatever it was. And uh, I created a character called the Blue Man, who was just this uh, freak in a freak show, based on historical truth, actually. What he had is a disease that you can actually get from drinking uh, silver nitrate, which they used to give people to calm their nerves. And people have come up to me and say, oh, can you write a book about the Blue Man, you know? Uh, just write a whole book about the Blue Man. And that was so interesting to me that, you know, gosh, you create a character from scratch and then people want to see more from it. And that's when I began to say, well, this, this fiction thing's pretty cool. So. I think that was probably, in terms of fun, that was probably the most fun moment. Well, you mentioned people coming up to you, not only about the Blue Man, but earlier with Tuesdays with Maury. How comfortable was that for you, Mitch? I mean, here you are, this former sports writer, Mm. and then you write this wrenching book about this beloved professor, and then all of a sudden people are looking to you for spiritual guidance. I mean, you're not a rabbi or a minister or what? Uh, Amy Tan is, is a friend of mine, and I uh, sent her the original manuscript for Tuesdays with Maury because I really respect her writing. And I said, will you please tell me if I have anything here at all? And she called me up, and she said, well, i got two things to say to you. Number one, this is a really, really good book. I said, well, thanks, Amy. You know, what's the second thing? And she said, you're about to become everybody's rabbi. <laughs> and, uh, boy, that was like the most prophetic thing that anyone's ever said to me. And uh, to be honest with you, Laura, I mean, at first, it was very daunting because I'm a guy, and guys want to fix things. You know, that's what guys do. We just want to fix everything. And so, when people come up to you and, and tell you, you know, somebody died in my family, you want to you want to say this perfect thing to make them feel better. And there is no perfect thing. And the truth is, I'm not that wise, and uh, I'm learning too. And so, eventually, I've learned through the hundreds and thousands of times that I've heard this that a lot of times the best thing you can do is just listen. 
they're not really coming to you for advice as much as they are. They feel that there's a sympathetic ear. And sometimes it's easier actually to talk to a stranger, a sort of stranger, about somebody personal than it is someone in your own family where there's a lot of issues and things like that. And so I've learned to just listen. And I've learned to, um, I mean, little things like people in wheelchairs, you know, instead of standing over them and looking down at them. You know, I learned over time that, you know, when someone comes up to me in a wheelchair, I, I was just dropped down and, okay, so let's talk eye to eye. I mean, I was never good at that kind of thing. I was never good with sick people. I squirmed away from them. You know, I didn't ever want to go to a hospital. I was very squeamish. And as a result of all this, I've learned how to, you know, I've met many people who died the next week, you know. Uh, people sometimes call and ask me, would you talk to somebody? They're in a the hospital bed, they're down to their kind of last days and they really would appreciate a call from you, things like that. And I've learned to try to get comfortable with it. But I'm not worthy of it. And, I, you know, sometimes I worry that people expect too much out of me in that way. But this is a little bit of Maury's sort of uh, here, you know, like there's that joke uh, where a guy is dying and his eyes are closed and, and the person leans in really close to just see if it's about to breathe his last breath and he leaves him really close and suddenly the guy opens his eyes, grabs him, says, tag, you're it, and then, <laughs> and then goes to sleep and it dies. And what are you gonna do with, you know, now you're it forever. <laughs> and in a certain way, you know, Maury kind of did that with me and um, I, sometimes I just look up there and go, oh, okay, thanks, you know, but I think he, I think he's, wherever he is, he's smiling at the fact that he's forced me to have to deal with these issues, because I, I needed that, I really did. Well, and there's a strong spiritual thread through all these books. How have religious leaders, Mitch, responded to these books and the clear theme of this is what God wants, this is what heaven is, that you have in some of these well, books? Well, I don't know that I would agree with the premise of that part of the question because I was very clear in Five People You Meet in Heaven, in fact I wrote a page right at the beginning, this is not meant to be a view of heaven or to say one particular religion is right or wrong or whatever, I respect all religions and please don't take this as some kind of gospel text. I was using, you know sometimes people say well your books are about death, I, I don't agree, my books are about life. I, I use death in the books because nothing tends to put our life in perspective more than the fact that we're not going to live forever. And heaven was a device, you know, it was just a theory of the first stage. I always, it was very clear in that book to say that it's the first stage of heaven that you meet five people. And I never said this is really how it works. It was a fable. You know, you don't really think Goldilocks was talking to three bears, right? Or, but uh, it, was a, it was meant to illustrate a point. And to answer the first part of your question, religious leaders have been incredibly welcoming of these books. And I, first with Tuesday with Maury, I mean, Maury was born Jewish. Then he became agnostic for a period of time, and then he was an atheist for a period, and then he started borrowing from all kinds of religions. I called him a mutt. You know, he could quote Jesus, and he could, could quote Buddha, and then he could something from the Koran, and then he'd talk in Yiddish, you know, and he'd do it all at the same time. And I wasn't sure how people would take that, because I thought, well, then maybe the Jewish audience would feel, well, he abandoned his religion, and maybe others would say, well, well he's Jewish, we don't want to... Nothing like that at all. What I have found about religion is that religions are much more accepting of just good basic principles, no matter where they come from. And I think it has a lot to do with either the media perception of it or the things that get headlines that pit us against one another. You know, uh, Christians against uh, Muslims, against Jews, against what? Most religious people, when I talk to them, they're happy. If it's got a good message, they'll take it and they'll embrace it as their own. And so uh, my books are, are often used, if I find out, in sermons. 
be they Jewish sermons or Christian sermons or Catholic, I mean, wherever they are, and, and I'm fine with that. I'm not trying to tell or to proselytize or be anything, but the ideas of taking time with your family and loving the people that are important to you, these, they're not a member of an exclusive club. You know, they don't belong to one religion. They belong to, to all religions. There's another theme that runs through some of your books, not Tuesdays with Maury, but the other two, For One More Day and um, The Five People Meet in Heaven. And that's the aloof, even violent father. Yeah, tell me about it. My father keeps telling me about that all the time. <laughs> Why do yeah. these gentlemen keep showing up in your books? Well, in Maury's case, it actually was true, too. His dad was very difficult. And Five People Meet in Heaven was based on an old uncle of mine, my Uncle Eddie, and I tried to make the story as close. It really helped me to see him as that character, and he really was Eddie. I mean, talk like this, you know, and he always said, I'm a nothing, I'm a nobody, I've never been nowhere, you know. I would talk like him to get the character's voice, and then I would write it down. And his father was just a, oh, the worst, and he beat him unmercifully. And so I thought, well, that's part of why Eddie probably became the way he did. So I, I just created that. And then uh, when For One More Day came along, I knew I wanted to say something about divorce, and I knew that I wanted to write about mothers and sons. I think there's been a lot of, it's interesting, there's a lot of books about fathers and sons, and there's a lot of books about mothers and daughters. But for whatever reason, there aren't that many about mothers and sons. I think men are somewhat embarrassed by that relationship. They think it's, it makes them a mama's boy, or they're soft, or they don't want to write. It seems the only time it ever really comes up is like in Italian gangster things, you know? <laughs> like the Sopranos, you know, they're all, they all, my mother's a saint, you know? There's always that, that relationship, you know, ma, ma. But other than that, you don't really read about it. So I knew I wanted to do a book about that, and that meant if they were going to be divorced, the bad guy kind of had to be the dad. But it's funny that you ask that because my father is a great guy, completely opposite of my mother. My mother was, you know, all fire. My father was ice. And, you know, he was just quiet, went to work, you know, kept things really calm, has, has a deep voice like that. And the other day, when they got the book, and I sent it to them, because so they, they can't read um, manuscripts. I learned that the hard way, because I sent them the manuscript for the five people you meet in heaven, and they're in their late 70s, and they can't read a book like this. But they didn't want to tell me that they couldn't really read it, and when I called them, I said, so what did you think? So my mother says, well, um, it didn't have any of those parts where those pages are really boring, and you just, you know, skip over them, because it has a lot of detail in it. And... Uh, I said, okay, it wasn't, it wasn't really the compliment I was fishing for, and I, I said, well, put Dad on the phone, and my father got on, and I said, well, Dad, what did you think of the book? And he said, I think the title has a lot of words in it, doesn't it? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't send them manuscripts anymore. I found out that they just couldn't really read it, so they were faking. So when I sent them the actual book, which was only a few weeks back, my father, when I just saw him, he pulls me aside and says, look, not that I really care, but I mean, every one of your fathers is, is such a, did I do something? Did I? I said, no, Dad, just wait. I, just wait one or two more books. I'm sure I'm going to have a really great father in one of these books. <laughs> well... In this Writers on a New England stage series, we always ask a couple questions of the author, just about the process of writing themselves. And one question along that line for you, Mitch. First of all, how much did your career as a sports writer prepare you for being a writer of what I would call, for lack of a better word, inspirational books? Well, 
I don't know that the, the inspirational part had a whole lot to do with time I spent in the locker rooms, I can tell you that. I think Maury had more to do with that. But I will tell you that being a sports writer in particular, being a journalist in general, but a sports writer in particular, you face the worst deadlines as a sports writer. And I have many a night had to write two columns simultaneously as games were going on. One if they win and one if they lose. And I mean big, you know, like if they win the championship, it's one column. And if they lose, they have to come back and play another game. I mean, there's no connection between the tone or the facts or the rest of them. And you've got to keep jumping back and forth with a split screen and you're trying to watch a game and write it and you have to send it three minutes after the game is over. Because I work for an East Coast deadline paper. And what that trains you to do is not fall in love with your words. Because if you fall in love with your words and you read them over and over again too often, you won't cut any of them, you're never gonna make your deadline. And so my editors in my fiction writing have found, they've said to me, boy, you're so easy to work with and make a suggestion. I say, all right, well, we can lose that. Because I don't feel like any one sentence holds the whole book up. Uh, I've just been trained, I, I can, I'll never get that out of my system. There's 25 years of, of learning that you know, there's another way to say it and you can throw it out and you won't be lost. You'll find your way back. And so I've done so much physical writing, so much typing, so many words have gone through that my muscles are toned for this kind of thing. And, and it's, so in that way, it's been a very big help. But really, hanging around a lot of naked men in locker rooms does not give you a lot of inspiration, I can tell you that. <laughs> that, that I think I got someplace else. Here's another question about writing. This one comes from our audience. It's from a gentleman who has brought his writing class here this evening from Southern New Hampshire University. How proud you must be. (laughs) (laughs) Brought my writing class here this evening, and I was hoping you could talk about how much pre-writing, outlining, and revising you do to keep your stories so clear, even though uh, you have many shifts in time and place within one story. How old are the kids? University. Oh, university. Well, first thing I can tell you is I didn't do any writing until I was about 23 or 24 years old. Nothing. I didn't write for a school paper. I didn't write stories. I didn't take any English classes that got creative. Nothing. I wanted to be a musician, and that's all I did all through school. When I got out of school, I moved over to Europe, and I was a musician. And so the first thing is, if you haven't written your first novel by 18, don't feel like you're a failure. It seems like young people today, they, they all feel like a, they're not a CEO or a vice president or something by, by 18 or 21, they're behind. And I, I didn't write a word of any kind. And I started working for a local newspaper that they gave away in shopping carts in the Piggly Weekly, you know? So it wasn't like I had some big, huge beginnings either. But now that I've said that, I have to be honest, I don't outline anything. I, I, I don't work like that. <laughs> So I don't want to actually give that as advice. Uh, But for me, maybe because of all the time I've spent writing over the years, I kind of know the story I want to tell. And what I do need is an ending. And a lot of my, the friends who are in this band, I mean, we have some pretty well-known novelists that I've gotten, you know, my friends have been in this band for 12 years, so I've talked to them about this, Scott Turow and Stephen King and Amy Tan and Ridley Pearson and all these people are in the band. We all hang around. So... Like Stephen says, well, I just kind of get into a book and I let the characters take me where they're going to go. And I hear that, I go, you nuts. (laughs) You know, where where do they go? Come on, Steve, we're going this way, you know. (laughs) My characters don't talk to me like that. My characters look up from the page and go, so where are we going? (laughs) You're the author, come on. 
so I need that North Star to sail towards. And I don't need the middle, but I need to know what I'm, you know, I knew in the five people you meet in heaven that that little girl was going to take his hands and was going to say, those were my hands that brought you to heaven. I knew that almost before I knew who the second, third, or fourth person was going to be in heaven. I just, the image came to me and I said, okay, I know where I'm sailing towards here. I kind of knew what I wanted to do at the end of this one too. So I guess that's my form of outlining. I, I have the premise, I think a lot, and, and that's the advice maybe I would I would give is it's okay to think and it's okay to start things and, and stop. I started four books and got off every one of them until I got to this one because it felt right. And then once you do, you just pursue it. Well, Mitch, I have to ask this one last question. I know you've been asked it before, but I have to ask it. If you could have one more day with anybody, who would it be? Oh, well, I mean, the, the obvious ones, you know, obviously I'd like to spend the day with Maury and just ask him how he thinks I'm doing. That would be nice, and I certainly would like to see my Uncle Eddie again because uh, the last thing he ever expected was to have a book <laughs> written about him. He never got out of eighth grade. But uh, honestly, the one person that I actually missed the most was my uh, mother's brother. Uh, his name was Mike, and he was so kind of a second father to me, and he taught me how to drive, and he taught me how to play football, and he named me. He, I was born on his birthday, and so my mother said to him, uh, he, he was her kid brother, and she said, well, if, if I have the baby on your birthday, you can name him, as long as you name him with an M, because their father's name was, uh, began with an M. He died when my mother was very young. And sure enough, I came into the world on my uncle's birthday. And so my uncle came to my mother and said, okay, I got the name. My mother said, well, what's it going to be? And he said, Marmaduke Bagatella. <laughs> and my mother said her version of no freaking way. And somehow they settled on Mitch. But he was just a, I, I just was wild about him. And all the characters that I create in my books who were wild about their fathers was really me with my uncle. And um, unfortunately, he got cancer uh, in his late 30s, and uh, he died when he was 42, and I was living there. I was a musician in New York, and I was living on the apartment underneath him, and I watched him slowly die, and, uh, and the night before his death, I got a call at 4 o'clock in the morning from him and my aunt saying, would you come upstairs and watch the kids? They had two little children because uh, Mike's not feeling well. He wants to go to the hospital. And I had no experience at that point in my life with this kind of thing. Nobody had ever died on me. And uh, I, it was way before Maury or any of that stuff. And I came upstairs, and they were in the hallway at 4 o'clock in the morning. And there's a certain eeriness to that time of morning, you know, a certain quiet, like a hum to it almost. And, and I remember we walked down the hallway to the elevator, and, and he was yellow, you know. And I, could, I had some sense that, you know, this is a, an important moment but I didn't know how to handle it. And he got into the elevator and it opened and the doors started to close. You know, and I felt like I should say something, but I didn't have anything really good to say. And then the doors just closed like in a movie and I never saw him again. He died like six hours later at the hospital. And so um, I sure would like to get that one over again. I'd like to be a little smarter about it. And I'd like to walk him through life and show him that his son grew up. Sorry. that his sons grew up and, and uh, one of them has two kids of, of his own now. And uh, I'd like to say, you see everything you, you worried about, you didn't have to worry, uh, they're okay. The kids came out okay. 
And so uh, I, I, would, I would like to have that day. Sorry. Riders on a New England stage is executive producer and presentation director is Patricia Lynch. New Hampshire Public Radio broadcast producer is Keith Shields. Musical director is Bob Lord, house band, dreadnought, stage manager, Jana Morris, technical director and lighting designer, Quentin Stockwell, sound engineer, Dean Clegg, SRC Sound, recording engineers, Joe Larson and Ian Sylvia. I really want to thank our author tonight, Mitch Album. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. To hear the entire performance with Mitch Album or to hear other shows from our Writers on a New England Stage series, go to our website at nhbr.org. Special thanks this hour to our house band, Dreadnought. Writers on a New England Stage is a collaboration between New Hampshire Public Radio, the Music Hall in Portsmouth, and River Run Bookstore. I'm Laura Canoy. This is The Exchange on NHPR. NHPR.